The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Our scripture passage today is Luke chapter 15. You can stand with me as I read God's word. John will be preaching this morning from the entire chapter, but instead of reading the entire chapter, I will be reading verse 7, verse 10, and the parable of the prodigal son. So let's begin in verse 7. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 10. Just so. I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into the far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything... A severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
Well, as we are making our way through Luke's gospel, um, we are just consecutively working, working our way through. We come to probably, arguably, maybe one of the more famous, if not the most famous of the chapters in Luke, especially that parable that Tara just read for you, the parable of the prodigal son, the lost son, or you're going to hear me say it's really a parable about the lost sons, plural, because both the older and the younger son are the lost sinners in need of repentance. Um, What we're going to see this morning is with this idea of the lost sheep, lost coin, lost sons, the sermon title is just simply going to be called Lost and Found. And the main idea that we're going to see here, if you want to encapsulate these three parables, boil it down to a sentence, it would be this, that God seeks and receives the lost in great love. And all of those phrases in that main idea are very important. The idea that God is in the business of seeking, God is in the business of receiving lost, repentant sinners, and the picture of the father that we get in the parable of the lost sons, his compassion, his love, his pursuit, his readiness and willingness to receive repentant sinners is the picture of a father that just portrays the desire and the heart of our God, the father in heaven that we have, and his great love with which he receives repenting lost sinners. God seeks and God receives the lost in great love. So here's how I'm going to pray for you this morning, Um, and my encouragement is that as we pause and we ask the Holy Spirit to move in power to work in the hearts and minds would be to just maybe hear two things before we do that. One would be to like look to your left, look to your right, see who is sitting around you. And my encouragement would be that as we go to pray here in a moment, that you would not only ask God to open your eyes to see Jesus and to open your mind to understand the scriptures, but you would pray that for the person to the left and to the right of you. Be an intercessor for your Jesus family, okay? The other thing that I would encourage you to pray for is this. Because the familiarity of these parables, especially the parable of the prodigal son, familiarity has a way of blunting the edge of the gospel at times. Ooh, yeah, 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 prodigal son parable. Can we get on to lunch, please? Right, is maybe what we're tempted to think right now. Heard it, heard it preached, read the books, been there, done that. But what you're going to hear me say in a moment, if you remember that the theme that's hanging over these verses is the question, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And Jesus responded to that question back in chapter 13 with this response. You need to strive to enter through the narrow door of me and salvation alone. So there is some extremely, as we're going to see, something scandalous about the grace of our loving God. That sinners can receive what they do not deserve because of the Father's willingness to seek and receive sinners who repent in great love. We have heard that so many times that the sharpness and the goodness of the gospel has been and can be blunted. And so I'm just asking, ask the Lord here, like in five seconds, for the Spirit to resharpen the edge if it's been blunted 
the familiarity of these verses, ask the Spirit, will you freshly cut my heart open and, and help me to realize and see the grandeur of the gospel? Amen? You understand what I'm going for here? So let's do that. Let's go to prayer for one another in these ways, and then we will get into the text here. Lord, will you move in power? Would you move in might? Would you have your way among us this morning through the proclamation of the gospel? Would you help us to come and submit ourselves happily and joyfully to the good news that God, our Father, through Christ the Son, are in the business of seeking and receiving lost, repentant sinners? And this is all done by you, Father, in great love. Spirit, would you pierce our hearts this morning? If the sharpness of the gospel edge has been blunted in our hearts and our minds because of the familiarity that we have with these verses, Spirit, I'm asking that you would re-hone the edge that you would just cause us to sit back in our seats with our knees buckling and our hearts awed and wowed in worship as we consider and hear again the good news that God the Father through Christ the Son is in the business of seeking and receiving lost, repenting sinners in great love. Wow us with your love this morning, O oh God. Use me as an instrument of gospel proclamation this morning, but in it all, above it all, give us eyes to see Jesus. It is in Jesus' name that I pray these things. Amen. Well, remember that Luke 15, these three parables, they, they exist in the context, right? This isn't just random stories just thrown in the middle of a book that come out of nowhere. What we see is that in a very timely way, Luke is putting these three parables exactly where they are in this theme section that is being steered by the question that was asked Jesus, like I just said, back in chapter 13, verse 23, where someone comes to Jesus and says, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now, if you remember, we've been working through the various responses that Jesus has given through his teaching and a Pharisee's dinner party and people who are coming to him. And he's saying this is what the cost of followership looks like. It's wholehearted pursuit of me. But what we've seen is that Jesus has been answering this language with a dining language, with supper language, with there are those who are going to be dining at my table and my forever banquet in my kingdom for all e eternity. And there are those who are going to be at the table with me and the guest list is going to be very surprising. That's been the language he's been using to answer that question, Lord, will those who are saved be few? He says this, that there are many who appear to be first. Surely these people are going to be at the table. What you're finding out that they're the absolute last. Why? Because they're not striving to enter through the narrow door of salvation in Christ alone. They're unwilling to count the cost of of following Jesus. 
Yet, Jesus says, there's going to be many at that eternal table with Christ forever who in all appearances here on earth were last. Surely these people will not be there with Christ in his kingdom. But actually, Jesus says they're first because they have heard and they have obeyed that command to strive. They have entered through the narrow door of salvation in Christ alone. In other words, if you want to round out of all of these things we've been hearing into chapter 15, those who are being saved in response to the question, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Jesus is saying, you can count on this. There are those who are going to be saved. What Luke is helping us to see as the kind of narrator that he is, is that there are those who are being saved And those who are being saved are those who are taking to heart the very last words of Jesus in chapter 14. So if you look in your Bible at the last words there, chapter 14, Jesus says this, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. If you hear these things, hear. Not just like audibly, let them ring in your ears, but hear with a heart of obedience. Now, we know that people are paying attention to Jesus in this way, that there are people who are obeying the command to strive to enter through the narrow door. They are counting the cost of wholehearted discipleship, followership to Jesus. They are those who will be seated at Christ's eternal banquet for all time because Luke says so in chapter 15, verse 1. So notice how... End of 14, he who has ears, let him hear. Then Luke says, hey, what you need to know is that the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear. They're being wooed to Christ. They see what Jesus is saying. They're counting the cost and they're drawing close to him. Then Jesus rolls right into these parables. And so what these parables are designed to do is they're designed to shed further light on why many that we assume who are first are going to be last. They're shedding light on why the Pharisees and the scribes are at risk of being excluded from Jesus' heavenly banquet. But these parables are also revealing another truth about the Savior's people. Not only are they those who strive, not only are they those who count the cost, but they are also those who were once lost, but also found. They are also those who were sinners, who came to their senses, saw their need to repent, turn from sin, and turn to the shepherd who loves to seek and to save the lost. This is what we see in the first ten verses. Those who are saved seated at the king's royal table is because God seeks the lost. That's point number one, verses one through ten. God seeks the lost. Now, before diving straight into these parables, notice Luke does what the good doctor loves to do. He loves to give a little verse, two-verse contextual heads up, like, hey, this is why Jesus is saying the things that he's saying right now. And what we discover is that the friend of sinners is doing what the friend of sinners loves to do. He is receiving sinners and he is eating with them. 
He is calling out to the crowds, you can know salvation, strive, count the cost, come to me. People are hearing this and obeying, coming to Jesus and not getting a stiff arm from Jesus, but coming to Jesus and Jesus is receiving them in. And this response of the Pharisees, what is their response to all of Jesus receiving Eating with sinners is grumbling. You see that there in verse 2. Pharisees, the scribes, grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. It's muttering. It's complaining. They recognize that eating implies fellowship. Eating with these sinners implies nearness. It implies this desire to be with someone. But notice that the irony is rich in the response of the Pharisees to Jesus receiving sinners and tax collectors. Why? Because the Pharisees' muttering accusation is actually your hope and it's my great hope. Do you see what's going on here? Their grumbling is our good news. Their muttering is our gospel. Yes, we praise God that Jesus Christ receives sinners and eats with them because we are sinners who need to be received by Christ. But notice that this good news that Jesus is the friend of sinners who receives repenting sinners, it lands on the ears, the heart, the mind of the Pharisees and the scribes as the absolute opposite of good news. It's the worst news ever. For the Pharisees and the scribes, the willingness of Jesus to shepherd sinners is bad news. Thus, Jesus told them this parable, says Luke. And then, boom, he's right into a lost sheep, a lost coin, and the lost sons. Now, it's just important to know, maybe this is a church word you've heard a thousand times, but maybe you don't know how to summarize it. Luke says that Jesus told them a parable. What is this idea of a parable? A parable is, in, in a simple definition is this. It's just a story with a spiritual point. Story of a spiritual point. That's a good low, cookie on the low shelf definition of what a parable is. So Jesus is going to tell a story about a sheep that was lost, a coin that was lost, and two sons that were lost. And these are stories that have a spiritual point. And the lost sheep, lost coin stories, they both make the same point that God has deep concern for lost sinners. God has deep concern for lost sinners. So with your Bible open, look at verse 4. Notice that Jesus draws in his hearers by, by asking this question. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that was lost until he finds it? On the face of it, as Jesus rolls into the parable of the lost sheep, the mathematics seem to work against that missing sheep. If you could sort of somehow like put voice, words into the mouth of the sheep, hey, you're lost, you were with the hundred, you're the one in the ditch, like what do you think your chances are of being rescued? My, my hunch is that the sheep like, I don't know that the mathematics work because the shepherd has 99, I'm just one, I'm assuming that the risk of heading out to find me, the one sheep, the shepherd just might go like, that's, just, that's a cost I'm unwilling to pay. The potential risk of all the 99 scattering and going their own way, it's just, it's just not a cost I'm, I'm worth, I'm worth uh, willing to take. 
After all, the, the shepherd might think this. It's just one sheep. I still have 99 in the pen left behind. The shepherd might draw the conclusion that in his economy, 100 sheep minus one sheep, that's a viable 1% loss. It's just 1%. I can handle that kind of loss. But what Jesus is teaching in this story with a spiritual point is that in God's economy, leaving the 99 for the one is gain. It's not loss. It is pure and absolute gain for God to be the one who seeks to save that one lost sinner. Even though it is only one lost sheep, the importance of the one to the shepherd means that one lost sheep will be sought after until it is found. There's value in that one. Then you roll down into verse 8 and you see that Jesus repeats this teaching this time using a woman who has ten coins and loses one of the coins. Now, in similar fashion, losing one coin, the percent values jump. She just lost 10% of her savings, right? So what she doesn't do is be like, ah, 10% loss, who cares? No, she ransacks her house, turns it upside down. Seeking diligently, says Jesus, until she finds that coin. Why? Because her one coin is valuable. It's valuable to her. And I think Jesus is inviting us to see that the way she finds value in that one coin gives us a heads up that each individual sinner is of value to God. And so it is gain for him to go and to seek and to pursue, to woo the hearts, to draw people to himself. Listen, you know from your own experience that it is right to go after lost stuff. Some of you lost your car keys this morning. Some of you lost your cell phone this morning. It's in the place where I always put it. It wasn't there this morning. What you did not do was go, whatever. You, you turned the house upside down. You probably blamed your wife, your spouse, your husband, your kids, the dog, the neighbor's dog, the aunt that visited. You were, you, were, you were going nuts trying to find the one. Why? Because you know it's right to go after lost stuff. Well, what Jesus is revealing about himself is this is the focus of my work. Just as it is right for the shepherd to seek the one, for the woman to seek the one, it is right for me to seek after one. This is the business I'm in. This is my, this is my work. And what happens is you see pictures and imagery of the Old Testament. You could go back to a place like Ezekiel 34. That's why I encourage you to read those verses of Ezekiel 34 in Slack before coming in today because Ezekiel talks about the shepherds, the priests, the religious leaders of his day who were called by God to be like little under-shepherds underneath God to, to counsel, to care for, to seek, and to literally shepherd the flock of Israel. But they had faltered at the post. They had failed. 
They were actually doing anything but leading people to God. They were leading people away from him. And so God, through his prophet Ezekiel, shows up and says, man, there is a day coming where in the lineage of David, there's going to be this long-promised shepherd king who's going to actually show up and do what you were meant and designed to be doing. And what we see here is that Jesus is this true shepherd. He is the long-promised servant of David who seeks the lost and brings them to God. This is where heaven's rejoicing is found, by the way. Just like the shepherd and woman rejoice at finding that which was lost, verse 7 Just so I tell you, says Jesus, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who, in their own eyes, don't need any repentance. I'm good, thank you very much. Verse 10, just so I tell you, if you thought the woman's joy was at a level 10 at finding her lost coin, what you need to know is that the joy before the angels of God cranks up to an infinitely amount higher over one sinner who repents. You see, with Jesus, the lost are found. Some of us use that language, do we not, to describe our own salvation experience. When you share your own testimony, does anyone ever, like, have you ever found yourself just using that language? Yeah? Like, I was lost. I was busy doing me. I was hiding. I was far from God. I was running. So we're going to see here in a minute, some of us were the older son wearing our sin in our hearts. Some of us were the younger son wearing our slit sin on our sleeve, out and out rebellious, and no one was confused on what we were doing. But we use this language. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. It's one of the great salvation pictures that we find in the Scriptures. The Scriptures love to talk about salvation in Christ alone through lost, found language. With Jesus here, he loves to seek and to save the lost. So for those who come to Jesus, this is 13, 14, up into 15. So for those who come to Jesus, for those who hear Jesus, for those who strive to enter through the narrow door of Jesus, for those who say the cost of wholehearted followership of Jesus is a cost I am willing to pay because Jesus is worth it. Jesus is here holding out real hope for sinners, tax collectors, those who are decidedly irreligious outwardly and even in their religion are truly irreligious. He's saying, listen, you can come to me and there is hope for you. Jesus is in the business of seeking and saving the lost. Using lost and found language to describe salvation, Jesus is teaching that to be dead in sin is to be lost. Thus, lost sinners need to be found by Jesus in order to be saved. 
And the greatest news ever is that Jesus is in that business of seeking diligently after the one that is lost. Now, if you wanted to see what verses 7 and 10 look like, right? Verse 7, just so I tell you, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Verse 10, just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. If you were asked a question of Jesus, Jesus, can you paint me a picture of what it looks like for one sinner to repent? He would just say, hold that thought. I've got one more story for you. And then he's going to roll right into the parable of the lost sons, because the parable of the lost sons is a picture among a bunch of other things. It's at least this. It's a picture of what it looks like for one sinner to repent and to be received into the love and warmth and welcome of a God who has deep, great compassion and concern for sinners who are lost and dead in sin. Look no further than the parable of the lost sons. Now, it's here that I was alluding to earlier when I said, I, mean, I say sons because the younger pig slop son and the older proud son, they're both lost. Right? We sell ourselves just a little bit short when we say this is the parable of the lost son and we just zoom in on the, the pig slop son. The son sleeping around with whores, spending all of his money. eating pig slop food. Like all of us look at that and be like, ah, that dude needs saved. And so we zoom in really quickly on that, but we sell ourselves short because just as much as the pig slop son is lost and a sinner in need of repentance, the older brother squeaky clean on the outside, seemingly right with the father, is equally as far from the father as the son living in the pigsty. It's true, the younger son is wearing his lostness on the sleeve, but the older son is hiding his lostness in his heart, so to speak. So the fact is, both sons are lost. Both need to be found. Both are sinners who need to repent. So Jesus opens his mouth and shows us how, point number two, God receives the lost repenting sinner in great love. That's the parable of the prodigal, I would say, sons. Okay. So notice that what put Jesus in trouble with the Pharisees, with the scribes, all the way back in verse 2 is this, is that Jesus had the audacity, according to the Pharisees, to receive sinners and eat with them. Now notice that Jesus tunes into this language down in verse 27. If you look at verse 27 in your Bible, Jesus picks up on this language in the encounter between one of the servants talking to the older son when the older brother comes back and sees the father throwing this very lavish party and he's like what gives and they, they love does not stoke their heart and Jesus in love is going to speak this parable as you're going to hear me say a parable that is designed both to expose and to invite people those who hear are supposed to have a, a measure of, wow, like that, like, like, like a fillet, man. Like it sliced me open and it laid my heart open. Like that exposed some things in me that I, I wasn't quite ready for. But it's also then meant to like with an arm reach into the heart and draw us to come. 
and to give our life to the God who loves. Have at it. This is my garden. This is your home. Don't do. The enemy comes is like, yeah, I'm pretty sure God doesn't have your best with this one command. I think you might be right, serpent. And so they disobey God and it dumps the whole world upside down. Remember all the way back in Genesis 3, specifically verses 8 and 9, we find God has entered the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day, and this is right on the heels of Adam and Eve's disobedience. And as a result of their sin, Adam and Eve, listen to this language, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God when they heard him, but God called out to Adam, where are you? There's the invitation. There's the wooing. They can't hide from God. They might think they can. Some of us try to hide from God in the pigsty, legitimate pigsty. Some of us try to hide from God in a $300,000 mortgage pigsty, but we can't hide from God. So God asks questions like this to meet us where we're at. Where are you? You're, you're trying to hide in your work. You're trying to hide in your relationships. You're trying to hide in sex. You're trying to hide in money. Where are you? It's invitation language to Adam and Eve to come out from hiding. This is God in the garden tipping the hand of his heart that I'm in the business of seeking the lost. You're hidden. You weren't designed to be hidden from me. You were designed to be in intimate relationship with me. I'm seeking you right now. Where are you? Not so that we can go run and try to fig leave ourselves to make ourselves right with God, but so that we could come to God and Him clothe us with His righteousness, restoring us back to a found relationship with Him. That's the good news of the gospel found in the Lord Jesus Christ. The repeated teaching of the Bible is that humanity, having rebelled against God in Adam, daily, hourly, minute by second, hides from God in guilty evasion. We're always trying to get, get out from underneath God. Always trying to run, duck, and hide from God. Ever since Genesis 3, the conclusion that we can draw then is this. We need and have needed God to seek the lost and receive repenting sinners back into a right relationship with him. That's what we need. And that's the invitation of this parable. Whether lost and dead in a sea of self-righteous sin like the older son, or lost and dead in a pigsty of sin like the younger son, or some mixture of variables in between, those who do repent, this is what Jesus is saying, Heaven rejoices over one repentant sinner. Pay attention because I'm giving you a story to show you what true repentance looks like. And if you come to the Father as a sinner, genuinely repentant, those who do repent can be utterly confident, says Jesus, that they will receive an unconditional welcome from the Father. That is the good news of the gospel. This is why Jesus turns to this parable of the lost sons. It shows that prodigal living is no match for the father's prodigal loving. Prodigal living is no match for the father's prodigal loving. Now, when you look at verses 11 through 16, you get a snapshot of what prodigal living can look like. What is prodigal living? Here's one definition of the word prodigal. It's this, 
If you go look it up on your, definite, or your dictionary app, one way to define the word prodigal is by spending resources with wasteful, reckless extravagance. That's a legit definition of the word prodigal. It's someone who has and then just goes nuts. Goes haywire, like just like, I'm going to be wasteful, I'm going to be reckless, I'm going to be extravagant. That is a legit definition of this idea of prodigal. And that's exactly what we see in the younger son's sin and rebellion. Notice, longing for what would be his if his father were dead, he goes to his father and demands of his father, I want you right now to give me the share of property that should be coming to me as if you were dead. So it's not so much like, hey, can you throw me a a 20 spot dad so I can go go hang out with my friends. He is saying this. You know this. You've heard this before. Dad, I should get something when you died. I can't wait till you die. So basically, can you just treat yourself as dead to me and give me what's coming to me? That's his motivation. His father gives it. And then getting what he asked for, the younger son gathers all he has, beats feet to a far country, and there, says Jesus, squanders his property in reckless living. There it is, prodigal living. This is the younger son's prodigal living. Money was his love. His stomach was his God. According to the older son, sex was his idol. But notice that his wasteful extravagance soon leaves him penniless. His prodigal living leaves him friendless. And the miserable consequences of sin and rebellion come home to roost. And it is only then that he began to be in need. For some of us here today, that is your story of salvation, is it not? I mean, it was rebellion, like it was rebellion par excellence. ran after everything but Jesus and you wore it on the sleeve. Never in a million years thought the kind of place you found yourself in when your eyes were open to your need for Jesus, like you did not set that on your day planner. You didn't say coming out of high school, man, I hope in 10 years I'm living in the pigsty of the consequences of my sin. That the fallout that is now mine, where my money is gone, my friends are gone, I have nothing, I am in need. But what you can look back and say is this, Jesus loved me enough in this way that he, like he let me run in this way because I would not have come to see my need if it wasn't for the way this thing shook out. Like I am the younger son. I needed this to happen. I came to be in need and I saw the miserableness of the consequences of my sin and it had to be this so that in a weird way that I might not fully be able to understand God was loving me so that I would be led to this place to finally come to the end of myself and see that I actually do have a need because otherwise I never would have seen my need for Jesus. Some of us can raise our hands and say, like, that's my testimony, yeah? And for the younger son, seeing his need, he finds himself in the field, feeding pigs, hungering for pig slop, yet no one was giving him anything. A lot of us, 
have seen it before. Maybe we've asked questions about, like, why is my coworker, my neighbor, my friend, like, why is it that? Like, they just don't see their need for Jesus. And I think if you take that phrase, no one gave him anything, what, what, those, what those people in your life have yet to see is this. They still believe that there's things other than Jesus that, that can give me something. Nah, that one more pay raise, I think that's what's going to give me the satisfaction that I want. No, 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 the restlessness of my heart, I'm positive it's going to be found in this yet again relationship. Oh, man, surely this next sexual encounter, that is going to be the thing that's going to scratch the itch. No, 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 this new house. No, 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 this new car. No, 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 this new church. No, 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 this new job. These are the things that are going to give me something. But the younger son shows us that in our lives, as those things are plucked away and our restless hearts, says Augustine, were never meant to find rest in anything else, our restless hearts were only ever meant and designed to find rest in God. And God in his kindness will just slowly through life in ways we can't understand pluck away all the things that we're hoping and believing will find rest so that we're just sitting in the midst of the fallout and the consequences of the pig slop, pig sty, sin-filled, wretched stench of the consequences of our sin. And we come to our senses as the young man does and go, man, I've been trying to find rest in every single thing but the one thing that can only truly give me the rest that I need. Again, some of us can say, sign me up on that testimony list. That is me. That is me. And so notice that out of this picture of prodigal living in verses 17 through 19, Jesus then turns and gives us a study in true repentance. Remember, this parable. You want to see what one repenting sinner looks like? He says, check out the story. And here it comes. The kind of repentance from sin that stirs joy in heaven is what we see in the prodigal Younger son. Jesus tells us that the younger son comes to his senses. It's what we were singing earlier in one of our hymns. I will arise and go to Jesus. He'll kick me in the rear, tell me to get out, go clean myself up, and when I get myself better, I'll come back, and then he'll welcome me in. I'm going to rise and go to Jesus because he will embrace me in his own. What did I do to deserve that, the deep, deep love of Jesus? Like, why am I on the receiving end of that? Grace, grace, God's grace. What is grace? Grace is receiving what you do not deserve. That's what the younger son is about to get. He's about to get a mountain load of unmerited favor. He's about to get a mountain load of what he does not deserve. Jesus tells us that the younger son comes to his senses, and coming to his senses is this idea that he becomes fully aware of his sin. 
his confession reveals both an acceptance of personal guilt and a humble awareness of his own inability to help himself. This is the anatomy of true repentance. He says in his confession, there in verse 17, listen, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? Here's what I'm going to do, verse 18. I'm going to arise, like the hymn says. I'm going to go to my father, and here's what I'm going to say to him. Well, father, if you weren't stupid enough to actually give me this money, I would have never gotten the pigsty in the first place. So it's your fault. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, if you, wouldn't have, if you would have just led us a little better at home, dad, then I... He doesn't say that. He recognizes, I am here where I'm at because the guilt is mine. I made the decision. I asked for the cash. I went and lived like a rebel, and I've reaped the own consequences. Father, I have sinned. I have sinned, and I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against you. Dad, you were the recipient, unfortunately, of the backside, receiving the consequences of my sin, but more importantly, I've sinned against heaven. He owns his sin. But then notice that in humble awareness of his own inability to help himself, he follows that confession with, and that's why I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He understands, like, listen, I, I, I don't, I'm not here banking on anything. I'm not standing before you in confession because, like, I'm... I'm here trying to twist or tweak something. I'm, I'm here with this humble awareness of my inability to help myself. I am not worthy to be called your son. Please treat me as one of your hired servants. There's no sentimental remorse. There's no attempt at self-justification. There's no negotiation. There's just honest ownership of sin. And there's just simple plea. Help. Please. And in a plot twist for the ages, remember, Jesus is telling a story to people. <laughs> Don't lose sight of this. Most of the people would be thinking this at this stage in the game. That dirtbag son deserves to have the hammer dropped on his head. If the father is a father worth his salt, he is going to screw his son to the sticking post because that son made him look like an idiot. That son made him look like a fool in his neighborhood. I'm starting to think that the father might even be a fool because he's even entertaining a conversation with this son. And if this father's going to do what a good father does, he will not allow this son to come back unless that son pays his penance. That's darn right you're not my son, and you're going to go out there and you're going to try to work and earn your way back into my good graces. That's surely what the father is going to say. But in a plot twist for the ages, Jesus rolls into verse 20, and he counters the younger son's prodigal living with prodigal loving. While one definition of prodigal, as I said a couple of minutes ago, is spending resources with wasteful, reckless extravagance, you can go look it up. Another legitimate definition is this, giving something on a lavish scale. So the prodigal son's prodigalness was extravagant, reckless waste. The father's prodigal is lavish, overflowing, in this case, love. 
And we see prodigal loving is overriding and countering the prodigal living of that younger son. It's the lavish love of the father that demonstrates the prodigal heart of God towards the lost sinner. Notice the son's confession and repentance is received by the father's acceptance and restoration. While he was still a long way off, it's one of my favorite parts of this parable. The father saw him and felt compassion. That's the word for guts in the original text. His guts were churning and yearning. I can't wait for my son. There he is! Embraced him. Oh, real quick, get out, get out of there. Dads don't hug sons. No. Like this is wrap up, full tackle, probably laid the son out and they're rolling in the dust because the dad didn't pump the brakes. He just smoked his son and laid him out. Not in anger, but in love. Kissed him. I don't believe it. Smothering his son with his affection. Notice the son can only get two-thirds of the way through his confession before the father's compassion floods his son with grace. The father, best robe, bring it out now. Where's the ring? Put it on his hand. Shoes on his feet. Kill that fattened calf. We are going to eat. We're going to celebrate. It's all of grace. It's all of grace. The son didn't deserve any of this. Why? Because, why is the father doing this? Because... Here it is. This son of mine was what? Dead. Here he is alive. He was lost. And here he is found. The appropriate response to the loss being found is rejoice, celebrate. So, verse 24, they began to celebrate. But notice the response of the father's prodigal love. This is the last thing here. To the younger son's prodigal living, it reveals a proper failure to grasp grace. And that's just what 25 through 32 was about. This is where Jesus in his storytelling turns to the, the older son. He's been off the radar ever since the beginning of the parable, but here he is. He shows up. So we got prodigal living outmatched, overshadowed by the father's prodigal loving, but it's this prodigal loving which reveals a proper failure to grasp grace. The older son responds to the, prodigal, the father's prodigal love and anger. Do you see that in verse 28? But he was angry and refused to go in. The unmerited favor of getting what you don't deserve just doesn't compute for the older son. Look at verse 30. You can hear the incredulity in the tone of his voice, can you not? When this son of yours came, who, by the way, Dad, just in case he hasn't gotten around to confessing this, was devouring your property with prostitutes, thank you very much, you killed the fattened calf for him and are throwing him a party? Can you just hear the incredulity in his voice? For the older son, grace is a foreign concept. There's no room for righteousness to be applied to someone's account in this way. For him, the only righteousness is self-earned righteousness, and that's what he throws back into his father's face. Verse 29, those, this is what he's doing here. He's saying, listen, he doesn't deserve your 
right relationship. He doesn't deserve for this rightness to exist between he and you. He has done nothing to earn this preferred and lovely and favored status between you, but I have. Don't you see what I've done for these many years? I've served you in some 